Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. In an attempt to make sure that we cover all sorts of diverse and marginalised voices, today I have the pleasure of speaking to African science fiction writer Chinello Onwalu. We're talking all things African speculative fiction today, and you will get to see just the absolute depth of my ignorance on this topic. We hope to enlighten you and entertain you. Hi Chinello, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is Chinello Onwalu, and um, I'm a writer and editor. Um, I'm Nigerian, I live in Nigeria right now. And um, I've been writing uh, genre fiction for, well, really my whole life, but I've only started really, I only started really getting serious about publication and taking it seriously as a career, maybe about, um, yeah, about five or six years ago, uh, really. Um, I've written a bunch of short stories, and um, I, uh, I've had a bunch of stuff published, a couple of things published here and there. Um, so, yeah. Uh, also, I'm um, chief spokesperson of the newly created African Science Fiction Society. You're more than well qualified um, <laughs> to talk to us today. I feel really quite awful, as I, I just don't know very much about African speculative fiction at all. I mean, to be honest, I I didn't really get into um, African speculative fiction until about, oh, I don't know, about four or five years ago when I really, um, I think I first encountered, I mean, I've encountered different parts of it growing up, um, but I think uh, the first time I thought about it as something distinct from, like, you know, the kind of science fiction and, and other genre fiction I grew up reading was when I read um, Ben Oakley's The Famished Road. And I read that I read that in college, actually. And that kind of blew my mind. And I, but I still didn't think of it as, this, as a, this thing on its own until I think I, I discovered Nidhi McCarful. And um, she, uh, I think the first book of hers I ever read was Zara the Windseeker. And I loved it. I and, and I was like, oh wow! I didn't know that, you know, Africans and I, you know, Nigerians can do this, right? Because like, I had this period where I knew I wanted to write, you know, speculative fiction. I knew I wanted to write science fiction and fantasy. And I spent like a good chunk of like my teens and twenties building this like secondary world. And then, um, but I was just kind of like, but Africans don't really do that, right? I mean, what we do is we write about, you know, um, political dictatorships and we write, you know, hard-hitting satire about, you know, the state of our countries. We don't do this, you know, or or we write like, you know, um, we write stories and then there's like a sprinkling of magic or there's like a, you know, <laughs> a witch doctor in there. And you're not sure if they're magical or not or whatever, but it's usually framed in terms of, you know, traditional religion. So nobody was actually saying, hey, no Africans, because, I mean, there's a long history of African-Americans and, um, you know, writers in the diaspora doing Afrofuturism, but that wasn't quite the same, was it? So I don't know. It's Yeah, I mean... I can't say that, oh, yeah, you know, it was this thing that was lying around and everybody should, you know, I can't believe you didn't know about this. Who, You know, I'm not going <laughs> to, yeah. like, jump down your throat. But at the same time, like, I think in the last maybe 10, 15 years, there really has been an unfolding of, you know, African speculative fiction as this thing that's distinct from um, science fiction and fantasy 
for, you know, genre fiction written elsewhere, including, you know, in the African diaspora. It's actually, you know, yeah. So that was me ranting. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I obviously, you know, as, as someone who, who doesn't know a lot, um, you know, I, I have, you know, I come from, uh, come to this subject matter knowing that there is, you know, this lack of black writers being published in, um, you know, like the, the kind of the big SF publishing magazines, um, just all that kind of um, traditional publishing sphere for the genre. Um, and also uh, where um, I read another one where it was not just that uh, black writers aren't getting published, but they're not even being reviewed as much as other writers are. And so I just wanted to sort of talk to you, obviously, about it um, as someone who is writing, you know, as a black SF writer and to talk about, you know, do you feel like there's anything about, um, you know, you need to pitch your writing to you know, an international market? Are people not interested in the stories you're telling? Is it something about, you know, like, do you, how do you feel when you kind of approach submitting work and, and all of that? Well, you know, okay, first of all, reading the fire, I read the Fireside Report. And, you know, what's really sad is that I wasn't exactly surprised Um but, you know, it was it's one thing to sort of have an intuition about it, and it's quite another thing to see the numbers and just go like, oh, my God, that's crazy. Um, uh, coming at it from an African perspective has been kind of interesting because um, as an African writer, sometimes you have this pressure on you to perform Africanness, you know, in yes. spaces that are, yeah, you know, in spaces that are, um, you know, where everybody's like, American and white, and then you're like the only person of color and the only African and the only woman. And then there's, you know, this sort of thing. And um, I've had situations where, you know, I had a story, uh, there's a great story I, I wrote where it was basically, I was trying to think about uh, the story of Superman and, and, you know, the idea of what it means to actually be an alien growing up in an alien world and what kind of person you would be. Um, you know, and I, you know, I had it set in a small town in, in the U.S. and I had it, you know, kind of, you know, calling back to a lot of, um, you know, parts of the story. Um, nobody took it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I shopped it around, I shopped it around and nobody wanted it. I took the same story. I set it in Nigeria, changed all the characters to, you know, Africans same same plot and sold. <laughs> so I don't know. There there is a there there's sometimes I mean there's for me it's a sort of a struggle between trying to not perform uh my heritage um and also at the same time representing because yes, you know, when you look at it it is true, most characters out there are written, you know, by white people, um, most of the ones that are published, you know. And when you look at the numbers from something like the Fireside Report, you can see that it's not an abstract thing. It's not a feeling. It's, mm. it's a real concrete thing. And so every time you put out your voice and every time you set something in, 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 in Africa or Nigeria or every time you have characters who are not white, you are adding to that um, conversation and you are positively but at the same time 
you know, you have to be careful that it doesn't limit you and it doesn't, you know, put you in the box and it doesn't make you the African writer. And so, you know, whenever somebody needs an African writer, yes, you're the yeah. person. You have to be careful, you know, because there's so little representation. It's easy to become the token. It's easy to become the one of the five names that gets called for a particular thing. And I don't know. I've, I've, I'm still sort of trying to think about where I fall um, on on that spectrum uh, because I do I do find that my stories are more interesting. They are richer, and um, they do have a unique uh, perspective to bring to the genre when I do set them here, and they feel better. They feel they flow better, but at the same time, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to be a token. I don't want to be the writer that's called because, you know, you are the woman in the field of Africa, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, it's I, funny. Um, um, I think. No, I just uh, listened to a podcast uh, with an interview with Sami Shah, who is a Pakistani writer, and he was talking about how he wrote this novel and he, th- he thought it was good and he'd sent it out to a load of agents and nobody was interested in it. And then he did it under a different name. And instead of saying that he was Pakistani, he said he was a journalist who had spent time in Pakistan and immediately an agent wanted to hear it, like wanted to read it. And, you know, and so I can see what you're saying about, you know, like then changing your story into to Africa, you know, setting it in Africa instead. And, you know, it's really interesting to see how, um, you know, these these agents, publishers, you know, respond to, you know, people's names and they think, oh, well, they're from from yeah. there or they yeah. must write about yeah. this kind they of thing. They expect a certain thing from you, yeah. And it's sort of, you know, what's, what's interesting is that when you are a, a white male writer, you're not, you know, no one expects you to say, oh, you can only write about white men and they must be set in the country from which you come yes. from, you know. Um, white men sort of can get to write anything they want to, really, don't they? And um, and they sort of have permission to do so, whereas I think sometimes you have the sense um, that you know writers of colors don't have the same kinds of freedoms to write about whatever they want. I remember um, there was a, a, a book that came out where it was set in the, the American South, and I think the writer was um, was Chinese American, and there was a lot of you know questioning about you know can a Chinese-American guy write about, you know, the Deep South? And you never get those kinds of questions from of white men. You never do, you know. Yeah, you, you have uh, white people <laughs> who, who um, you know, who, who can write, you know, uh, a futuristic novel set in India or Brazil, and nobody ever questions whether, you know, I mean, th- some people do, but if you notice the people doing the questioning are usually people of color. Other white people never go, wait, you know, you're German. How you know? Why should you be writing about you know? Yeah, so, and um, we're also writing in speculative fiction, which is by its very nature just making it up. You know, people write about worlds that don't exist. So why can't we just write about exactly. somewhere else? <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, the thing about the worlds that don't exist is that they're often based on worlds that do exist, right? Yes. So you take, I, I you know, I always find it surprising how people can picture a future with flying cars but with the same gender dynamics that exist today. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's something that I, that, you know, or, or, or the same racial dynamics that exist today uh, without ever being able to sort of think, through, think outside those boxes. So 
I, I find it interesting the kinds of permissions that we give ourselves and that genre gives to those writing within it. Um, and it's usually a question of who are the gatekeepers and what are they expecting to see from you, right? Yeah, definitely. So um, I wanted to talk about um, a quote sort of uh, that I picked up from one of the essays that you wrote in, um, I'm going to probably say it wrong, um, Omanana? Is it? Omenana, yeah. Omenana. Uh, Digital magazine. So um, you said in there, uh, there's certainly a difference between the kind of speculative fiction written by those invested in Africa and her future and those merely set in Africa, where the continent acts as an exotic prop or backdrop. And I just wondering if you could uh, elaborate a little bit more on that, because I found that really interesting. Well, um, I was sort of thinking um, along the lines of some of the early... Uh, early genre fiction, sort of, uh, if you think about things like uh, King Solomon's Mines or the Tarzan novels or or um, or even something as literary as Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conan's Heart mm-hmm. of Darkness. And, yep. you know, in, in those kinds of stories, you if you see any Africans at all, they are usually, um, you know, they usually... In, in, you know, they're not characters per se. They they tend to have you know, particular you know characteristics that are sometimes even indistinguishable from the animals around them. The story is about the white people, right? It's yes. about the adventure. It's it's um, so it, it doesn't take any into account anything about the people and the place as is. It's just it, it might as well be Mars, you know, for all its um, for all its effect on. The characters, um, and whereas I think if you have a story that is invested in Africa uh, um, and sees it as this real place, you it it, it tells a different story, right? It's the difference between um, things fall because, uh, for instance, it's the difference between things fall apart by Chinua Achebe and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, um, which actually, funny enough, Chinua Achebe wrote Things Fall Apart as a, a response to Joseph Conrad, who was writing the story about, you know, um, two white men who go into heart, you know, the deepest heart of Africa and come out changed and, you know, broken in some way. But it had nothing to do with the country. It had nothing to do with the people. Um, in fact, he describes, you know, cannibals Yes. in an area where... I think historically there has been no, you know, uh, <laughs> there, there, there wasn't any actual cannibalism recorded in that, you know, cult part of the, you know, cultural landscape. And so, you know, it's, he, he populated this, this place with his own fiction, whereas Chino Achebe was operating with, within an established peoples, with established cultures, um, you know, with, within these very rich and realized worlds, which... Africa was. It was just as realized as any place in Europe, and yet, you know, it, it was left up to us to have to, to make that obvious. Because when you write about a place without really taking into account the people, you're exoticizing, right? You're yes, taking yeah. them out of context. You're, you're using them for your own um, to tell your own personal story, regardless of what was actually going on there. And I think that's that. Uh, sometimes that that can be. When people complain that, you know, white writers are coming in and using particular cultural um, understandings 
that's sometimes what's what we're talking about because what you're doing is you're flattening the culture, you're taking all these things out like it's it's this toy that you can kind of go in, you know, oh, I love this outfit, let me take it off this doll. Oh, I love that tea set, let me take that off, you know, a dollhouse. But these these aren't dollhouses. These aren't um, these aren't D&D campaigns. These are real <laughs> places filled with real people with like real um, cultures that are changing and having their own interesting conversations. And so um, it, it's it's sort of been left up to, I, I think that it's it's it should be up to the people who live within these cultures to then interpret and and um, reinterpret and play around and reimagine themselves. When you as an outsider kind of come in and do that, you run the risk of um, of making it a playground, you know? So, um, so that's sort of what I was kind of talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, you know, I don't think that only Africans can, can, can talk about these things, but I do think that there is a huge difference even between when someone from the diaspora comes into Africa and sort of tries to reimagine it and someone who's already living here. So um, a great example of this, um, I think, is Charles Saunders, whom I, he's, he's an amazing writer, by the way. He was one of the people that um, I read some of his stories and they were set in West Africa and um, uh, reimagined, you know, the Dahomey. And uh, and just he 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 creates this absolutely beautiful landscape, and he pioneered what they call a sword and soul. I don't know if you've if you've ever heard of that. No. Um, it's sort of it's sort of taking the um, the fantasy trophies that you often see in Western fantasy, you know, taverns. But yeah, it, so it's, it's um, kind of the, the sword and sorcery stuff, but taking off of that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's taking quite. It's taking off of that, and it's sort of it's it's. Um, it it populates it with a black with a black imagination, and um, it's often set you know on the continent or on a composite place that has elements taken from the continent. So, um, but the the thing about um, a place, you, the thing about writing sword and soul is that I'm not sure that we as Africans would have probably thought of it that way because we don't see we don't look at our own cultural landscape and see it as this, um, this, this, uh, we don't, we don't think of it as a, as something that we can go in and just sort of, Oh, let me take from Yoruba culture. Let me take from Edo culture and look, put it all together in something pretty. That's, you know, I think it's, it's much harder to do when you're within the, that cultural context mm-hmm. because, you know, for you, you look at it and you see, Oh, that's, like, that's not right. That's that's from Bene, and that's from you know Nigeria. And isn't that Cameroonian? How did that get in here? You know, so it's it's harder to do when you are within that cultural context. It's much easier when you are outside of it. So I think it's not that one is more important or authentic than the other. It's just very different, and you know, different groups sort of you have we you have to give it. To the people who are living in there, to um, to to own it and then recreate it, and it, and it creates something completely different that way. 
I don't know if I'm making it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I know in one of these articles, you, you actually talks about how uh, the label of African speculative fiction kind of risks homogenizing this really diverse continent where you have these very different countries, very different cultures within this continent, but they're kind of all lumped together. And I kind of feel like that's another piece of what you're saying. Whereas when I, you know, someone like me would come to Africa and, and I might not notice the subtle differences in the cultures, but someone who is African definitely does and sees that difference. But that that label might kind of give people the wrong impression in, in a sense. Absolutely, it is one of the risks that you run. Yes, but you. Uh, but I think that it's it's a use. It's useful because um, what we're doing, what a lot of the stuff that's coming off the continent is doing, is very different from what's happening elsewhere. I think um, when I first got into reading about um, speculative fiction coming out of you know African and Nigeria in particular. I I really did think that I could just say Afrofuturist and say that oh you know we're all coming from the same place, but um, but it was quickly evident that we weren't, and um, and some of the stories that are coming out of uh, that I see in Omena now um, are so surprisingly different. You know they're they're coming from a place that sometimes is very nonlinear, um, and it's uh, because you have different educational systems. Um, Fiction isn't approached in the same way. Um, I often find, for instance, that, you know, we don't do a lot of dystopias. Uh, and when we do, there is, there's still a certain element of hopefulness to them. Um, we, you know, even the stories that I, that, for instance, in our Omenana issue 10, the issue, the X issue, um, which was a special uh, done with, the help of the Goethe Institute, uh, they gave us a small grant, and it was part of the African Futures um, event that happened. I think there was also one in Nairobi and one in in Johannesburg, and you know, different different writers sort of thought through their own futures. A lot of the stories we got out of that were surprisingly hopeful. I mean, they dealt with you know individual um, issues, and they. Uh, but they often were set in futures that were much brighter than, you know, the current, than the present, for instance. And that's just one small example. Um, another thing is uh, I see that we we are much less, um, we don't seem to have the same sort of conversations around technology um, as as I see in even in Afrofuturism or, or in, you know, um, general West um, um, fiction. Uh, some, sometimes the storytelling is not quite as um, dense, you know. Uh, I think what one thing I've I've found um, very refreshing about reading speculative fiction from Africa is that it comes across as much less concerned with you know trying to be you know um, fancy with the language, you know. People people speak three or four different languages, just you know. Most people are bilingual, mm. you know, a vast majority of people are, are trilingual, you know, so language is this has takes on a much more utilitarian form where, you know, English is just is, is a vehicle to transmit this idea rather than the end in a, of, of itself. It's not this, you know, I'm not trying to show how amazing, beautiful and, and finely wrought my language can be. I'm trying to tell a story. And sometimes that can be easier to read. It can seem on the surface a little bit more simplistic, 
but um, it's actually it's actually using language in a very different way. So, um, so you know, so some of those things. And so, um, yes, Afrofuturism is definitely. Uh, I mean, African speculative fiction is its own animal, um, and um, and it, it needs to be treated that, as such. Uh, it has its own sensibility, absolutely. Do you think, I mean, I like what you say about how it's, it's quite hopeful. And to me, that's kind of um, quite a few years ago. You know, I, I got into uh, speculative fiction growing up on original series Star Trek, which, you know, I, I watched a lot of reruns of, which is... Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah, it's great. And it's so much more hopeful than a lot of the stuff that we have now. And it's interesting yeah. to see, you know, that difference between like the 60s when there was the space race going on and people were just, they were imagining more hopeful futures. And then now, we, you know, everything's so dark and depressing. And I, I like the hopefulness of the older um, speculative fiction. And, you know, I think that's, it's really nice to hear that that is coming out of Africa because I really enjoy that. And I'm so sick to death of dystopias and miserable futures. <laughs> I would love to read something <laughs> hopeful. Um, yeah, there's definitely, uh, absolutely, there, yeah, and um, I think it's, I, I think it's interesting though that you know what we call the golden age, you know that that era of from of the fifties uh, with that hopefulness. Um, a lot of it centered around technology, didn't it? A lot of it centered around, oh, you know, if we just find the right, you know, um, source of energy, everything will be great. Once yes. we invent the replicator, everything will be awesome. <laughs> you know, and I, I think we just, you know, we've lost a little bit of that naivete. I think, um, but I think what, what comes out of what's coming out of African spec is 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 not the sense that technology will save us, but more that you know we we will survive whatever is happening now. You know, whatever the situ- however bad the situation is today, in fifty years it will not be. You know, this 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 will pass. And, and I think that that's sort of where the hopefulness is coming from. It's, it's a little bit different because it's not sort of imagining, oh, you know, we're going to be out in space and everything will be perfect. It's more that, you know, 50 years from now, Nigeria will still be a country. It will still be an entity. Mm-hmm. And we will have survived, you know, the present recession. We will have survived the, you know, the dictatorships. We will have survived the... The, the climate destruction. Um, and, you know, we had a story in Omenana, uh, it was um, Afri Nusria, it's one of my favorites, by this kid named um, Yazid Dazali. I'm pretty sure I'm not pronouncing his name properly. But he imagined, um, he, he, it's one of the few set stories I've seen set in the city that I live in, which is Abuja, and he imagines it in a post, uh, in a climate-ravaged Africa where, you know, governments have had to come together to form a sort of a union, an African union, similar to the European bloc, uh, in order to survive climate change. And even though the story itself, the story is a comedy, which is actually, you know, pretty interesting. <laughs> That's cool. Um, it's hilarious. You should read it sometime. <laughs> but, um, but and, it, and, and it, it imagines, this, you know, it has some pretty dark scenes, but overall, what's interesting is that the overall... Um, feeling that you're left with is one of hilarity. You know, it's sort of this 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 way we have, especially in Nigeria, of laughing at um, the inevitable doom <laughs> 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 and knowing that somehow we're all going to be okay. 
Uh, and I think that's the spirit that a lot of, you know, um, African speculative fiction embodies. Oh, wow. That's brilliant. Um, you, you've spoken about um, sort of some of the, the trends coming out, um, coming out of Africa. So do you think that perhaps, you know, there are trends sort of in terms of people writing, but who are, you know, voices who are struggling to um, publish or be heard? You know, I mean, what's, yeah, what's the deal I mean, there? <laughs> we, we had, you know, briefly talked about that on, when we were emailing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that, you know, the, the thing with, the fireside report, and it sort of takes us back to that, is that um, what it reflects are power structures. It reflects these existing power structures. Where who has the wherewithal to get their voices out? Who are the gatekeepers, as we as we like to think of it? And that uh, you know, just because you have this burgeoning um, genre on the continent, doesn't mean that it is without its gatekeepers. Um, I think one of the things I pointed out in um, in an article I had written for Strange Horizons was that uh, what you're seeing um, is that some of the most dominant voices of um, African speculative fiction um, are often white South Africans because you have a system in which, um, A, they have a very flourish, they have a pretty, um, compared to a lot of parts of the continent, they have a publishing system that is pretty robust. Um, and, uh, and so what you see in the genre is that you see a lot of, you don't see a lot, you're not hearing a lot of um, voices of black South Africans, for instance. Mm. And when these books get into the international limelight, when you think about it, you, it's often um, people like Lauren Bucus, um, for instance, or Sarah Lotz. On the continent, um, when I look at my slush pile, I often find that I, that it's filled with, a lot of men writing, um, and and it reflects the power structures here, where you have men have a lot more um, leisure, leisure time to do the sort of writing because you know women are the primary takers of children, and in many cases, even if they have you know careers, they're still expected to go home and cook and clean and you know make dinner and mm-hmm. you know you know there isn't a, I we just published um, uh, a study in Nigeria about masculinity, and it showed that 80% of men, you know, were not present at the birth of their children. Uh, um, the same amount um, never took paternity leave. So you have mothers who have to take care, basically full-time care of their kids in addition to whatever else they're doing. Um, you have higher rates of, you know, uh, lower um, literacy rates, you have higher rates of unemployment and underemployment among women. It, and th- this is just Nigeria, but I'm sure that th- these patterns are, you know, reflected across the continent. So who has the time? Who has the ability to go to school? And then when they come back from work, who has the three hours every night to type out a story? Now, that's not to say that there aren't, you know, a lot of women who are making great careers writing. Chikadili and um Meraladu in in the U.S. is is an, an amazing writer, um, but it, it it still reflects this particular um, power dynamic. So when you look at who's sending in stories um, in Omenana on a daily, it's usually people who are in uh, the diaspora who have that time, who have that energy. It's usually men who do have that leisure time, who who aren't you know put on their 
you know, undue pressure to, you know, to reproduce, to, to take <laughs> care of the house, yeah. home, right? Um, it's, it's, it's white South Africans who also have access, greater access to, you know, educational systems, to, um, to leisure, to time, um, because time is a resource. You know, we, we like to, we don't, we don't think of it that way, but it is. It is actually a resource, and it's a resource that is granted to people who are in higher economic status um, than others. And it's a resource that, that's granted to, um, to, to certain genders over others. Um, and really, as you get higher, as you, as you go higher in, let's say, class systems, you have people who have more time. And, uh, and that, yeah, and that, I will include myself in that. You know, I have privileges that some other people don't. And, and that affects who gets to write and the quality of the writing that they're doing, right? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so, so right now, what you see, a lot of the effort and the, the push for African speculative fiction is coming outside of the continent. And in, and in circles where people do have more leisure, they do have more resources, they do have more education, yeah. um, they have more access to learning about craft, for instance. You know, who are the people who are able to go to the, you know, like to go to writing workshops, for instance. It's, it's not somebody who has to work, you know, <laughs> you know 15 hours a day um, earning a dollar a day. So it's really about... and. Um, and I think part of what African speculative fiction has to do, seeing as we are at this nascent stage, is that we need to work to include all voices um, before we get to a point where, you know, um, power systems are codified and ossified. It's so much harder to make the changes in the West right now, um, and which you're seeing with the Fireside Report, because for so long, these power systems have been in place without really being examined. And, and when they are examined, there's so much pushback. There's so much, in, you know, in, um, institutional pushback um, and denial. And it takes something like a report that is so damning to get people to stop and, and think about what they're doing. Mm. Because, um, and, and even, even with the report, you still have, you know, institutional... Um, gatekeepers who are saying, "Oh well, we were trying. I don't know. You know, you guys should. <laughs> yeah, people should just submit more. Yeah, exactly. Like um, we're not getting the um, submissions. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which you know, I've always, uh, I, I've never been down with that. <laughs> um, so, so we are at a stage where we can actually work to make things inclusive right from the get go. You know, right at the bo- the, the ground floor." And, and I think that we really should take that opportunity because, you know, it's not every day that you get to be at the cusp of this, like, amazing movement, right? Yeah, <laughs> and that would be why, you know, there's, uh, I was reading also about, you know, the more and more digital magazines like yours um, coming up in Africa, supporting African writers, and, you know, that's really brilliant. And then also, so this is a great segue <laughs> into... Um, the African Speculative Fiction Society and the NAMO Awards, if you want to tell us a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Well, um, <laughs> the African Speculative Fiction Society uh, was started uh, earlier this year. Um, a, big, a big thanks goes to uh, Jeff Ryman, who, uh, you know, it has been one of the prime, premier um, 
uh, people behind the idea. Um, and it's sort of this, we, what we wanted was something a little bit similar to the CIFWA, where it's this space for um, African writers of genre fiction to sort of come together to talk, to discuss, and to, um, to, to look after each other's interests, for instance. You know, one of the things that CIFWA does that I've always liked is, you know, they have, uh, they have systems, warning systems, where they sort of uh, warn people about publishers who don't pay or who aren't treating mm-hmm. their writers right. They they set certain standards, you know, okay, this is what a pro-paying market is, this is what a semi-pro market is. And I think that there's a great opportunity in African speculative fiction for an organization to do that. So it's not like, you know, it's more just a space where we can sort of come together and really start thinking of ourselves as a body. Um, and it's not just writers, it's, you know, editors, publishers, graphic artists, filmmakers, you know, just creators of all kinds across um, the African speculative fiction genre. Um, the NOMA Awards came out of that because it sort of, we wanted a system um, where people would be able to be recognized for the work that they're doing. Um, we've got so many, you know, amazing writers, amazing artists, you know, and they're doing such amazing things. And, you know, we can't wait for other people to recognize it. We yes. can't wait for, you know, we can't wait for the World Fantasy Awards, you know, um, in order to sort of create a space where we can um, feel welcome, we have to create those spaces for ourselves. Because, you know, as we've seen, it's not like, you know, um, other places are just going to, you know, open up their doors and say, hey, yeah, come on in, you know. So we we wanted a space where you have people who kind of come from the same background, who kind of understand each other, who understand the struggles, for instance. Um, it, it can, I think... A good example of this is um, they've just taken the light. <laughs> the power has gone out <laughs> as we're talking. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's something that I think a lot of people from a lot of different African countries can recognize and go, oh, yeah, okay, that's cool, understood. But I'm not sure that, you know, a lot of people outside the continent would really understand that, <laughs> you know. Um, and that could also be a Nigerian thing. I <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and it's and it's little things like that, right? So, you know, I remember having to send in a story and I tried to make a deadline and I couldn't because I didn't have power for a week. Oh, but, yeah. you know, it was I was sending it to uh, to Malawi and they were like, oh, yeah, no, we totally understand. That's cool. So it's, it's I'm not sure I would have gotten the same level of understanding no. from a Western publisher. No. I, I, <laughs> so it's sort think... of like it, it's just. <laughs> Yeah, right? So it illustrates the need for um, for this space. Um, there is, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about who's an African, and, um, and, and I think that when you create a society like this, you can start making some of those distinctions. Um, you start carving out a space sort of like um, the, the salon in the Wild West, where everything is crazy until somebody opens, you know, the salon, and then there's a space for people to come in, and we know that, you know, there's not going to be a gunfight here. Um, it, it's similar to that. It's just this, um, this, this organizing space that sort of starts to really talk about and think about what we are doing in a very concerted way. Hmm. 
And also, I think, um, you know, like we, we've mentioned people like Nettie and uh, Ben Okri and think people like that who obviously have found a lot of success in publishing with traditional Western publishers. And, you know, there are, I imagine, a lot of voices who would be excellent writers but might not be published or picked up by, you know, the, the bigger publishing houses over in the West. So we might, might not hear of them, but they might be just as good. Um, so I feel like you know, something like the Nummer Awards, you've you've got that space to actually pick up on other writing that's really good, but just hasn't made it over seas yet. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, I think what we are hoping to be is this resource for people who are saying, okay, I want my stuff published. Who is doing this on the continent? Where can I find, you know, where can I find publishers? Where can I find editors? Where can I find you know, um, other writers who are doing the same thing. Mm. Um, and, and yes, uh, you know, if we, if we leave it, you know, to people on the outside, then they get to say, okay, what is African and what is not, for instance. Um, um, a good uh, illustration of that is um, we had uh, a point where we wanted, uh, we were looking for slush readers, and we got um, a couple of people. Um, one of the things I had asked them to do is look for stories that, that were African. And what I got back were a lot of stories about people in huts and, you know, villages and carrying water. And it said nothing about the quality of the story, but it did say a lot about what the readers thought of as African. And and so I think when you let other people tell your story, you can sometimes find out that what they're doing is they're not telling it in your best interest. They're mm. telling it in their best. But it's also like we've not gone past like colonial ideas of what Africa is. You know, it's the same kind of heart of darkness kind of representation of Africa, which was bad at the time. And that's over 100 years old. So (laughs) exactly. And it it hasn't really changed. And, um, you know, I sort of talk about it in this upcoming essay I have with Nightmare magazine that's coming out in October. And um, and it. Africa and the Western imagination hasn't really changed in, you know, 100, 200 years. And a, a good example of this, even when you have um, stories set in Africa, like um, Civil War, Captain America's Civil War um, was set in, had a set piece in Lagos. And um, they have, they go through all this trouble to recreate Lagos streets. They go through all this trouble to mm. sort of, to stage this massive, and they can't even pronounce the name of the city properly. You know, they kept calling it Lake, um, um, Lagos. And <laughs> I spent, you know, a good 15, 20 minutes just cringing in the theater every time they said this because I'm like, you guys did all this work and you couldn't even bother to pronounce the name of the city correctly. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, you know, what, what do you do with that? Uh, thanks for the representation, but no thanks. <laughs> you know. So, um, you know, at some point you have to sort of take over your own story. Um, otherwise, people will continue to tell it for you. And it may not be the way you would, you would like. You, you may not be represented in the way you like. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me. I really appreciate it. It's, yeah, this is great. All right, it was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. You've been wonderful. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that fascinating episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. Janello is absolutely awesome. 
All the links to her website and her other articles will be in the liner notes. Please check back with us in two weeks for the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.